The UC Wellbeing Channel, your portal to a balanced body and mind. Continue your journey at uctv.tv slash wellbeing. Thanks to Deepak and the Foundation for having me here. This is really a unique experience for me. I haven't come to such a conference before, and uh, the ones I go to are filled with those pointy-headed neuroscientists that Dan just talked about. <clears throat> We're afraid of words like emergence. Love would never, never come up. <laughs> and you know, I think it's because there isn't that much love in the room, so maybe, just guessing, just guessing. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to do my best to, uh, to speak to what I know about this topic, but there are disclaimers. So I'm a neurologist, I see patients with neurological disorders, I'm a neuroscientist, I have a laboratory, I study cells and molecules, I really care a lot about preventing Alzheimer's disease, especially in people with Down syndrome. You may not know this, but essentially everyone with Down syndrome who lives an average lifespan for somebody with Down syndrome will get Alzheimer's disease. It's, it's terrible, and I'm, I'm for those guys. I'm going to try to help them. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a systems neuroscientist. I really am a cell and molecular guy, but I'm really eager to see the power of neuroscience directed at the important pro-social goal of creating a world characterized by empathy and compassion. And I'm convinced that real hard science is going to be necessary to make this possible. So I guess what I want you to learn from this talk today is just this one thing. Neuroscience is an infant, but a healthy infant, aimed at transforming the world in which we live to be this place of empathy and compassion. It's our manifest destiny. Today we study stroke and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, and we should do that. Goodness knows that those are terrible problems that have to be dealt with. But the manifest destiny in neuroscience is to understand the psyche, to define and celebrate differences between people, to create a knowledge base that supports societal efforts, to pursue justice leading to peace and to foster methods to support communication, transfer of information, celebrate the mind, celebrate energy, to foster camaraderie and collaboration, and yep, love. That's what neuroscience is aimed at, and that's where it will go. But there are challenges here, because we don't yet have the tools that we need, really, to discover in a detailed way the brain basis of empathy and compassion. We need to evolve novel concepts for enabling the brain to engage empathic states and methods to enable these discoveries to be translated to practical application. We'll talk about one such study toward the end. So what is empathy? Empathy is the act of understanding, being aware of, being sensitive to, and vicariously experiencing the feelings and thoughts and experiences of another person. We're not necessarily another person, but typically another person. The ability to understand and share the emotional states of another. And what about compassion? Two possible definitions. To experience the consciousness of another's distress with a desire to alleviate it or to take on the suffering of another. So, some perspectives. Empathy and compassion are as fundamental to human life and times, 
as vision or hearing, as sensation, as taste, as eating. They're fundamental to our well-being. They're critical for pro-social behavior, for accessing resources that we need for mating. E.O. Wilson said something very cool, and I don't know if you've read this book, but I can certainly recommend it. The Social Conquest of Earth. To play the game the human way was necessary for evolving populations to feel empathy for others, to measure the emotions of friend and foe alike, to judge the intentions of all of them, and to plan a strategy for personal social interactions. It's very interesting to me that if you read the literature, you see that elements of empathy are present not only in childhood, but that critical elements are present at birth. Empathy is very much what we need and have practiced as a species forever. So here are some predictions. I predict that the neural basis for empathy and compassion will be defined, that the underlying networks will intersect with others that are linked to similar mental states and activities, that disorders that predispose to reduced empathy and compassion will support these discoveries, that defining the neurobiological basis of empathy and compassion will allow for training regimens that enable us to more effectively engage in empathy and compassion, and how exciting would that be? And here are predicted societal outcomes that applying this training in a broad and secular context will support pro-social behavior, that effective training will empower us to more acutely detect and respond to those in need, and that treatment of disorders of empathy and compassion may lead to restoration of function. Those are the outcomes that one might predict. Now, there are challenges. I mentioned that, in fact, neuroscience is in its infancy. I mean, really, neuroscience as a discipline has only really been around for about 50 years. Many neuroscientists view existing tools and concepts as inadequate for studying these functions. You know, I study cells and molecules. When I was at Stanford, I became interested in empathy and compassion, and I realized it was very difficult to pull together senior faculty in neuroscience around these topics. They were uncomfortable. What are you measuring? How can you measure it? How does that actually work? Their day job was safer if they didn't study empathy and compassion at that time. Well, that's going to change. We need to have a whole bunch of folks involved with this different expertise. That's not easy. That's not easy. And there will be ethical considerations to interventions that address these mental states. I was once asked, if you teach somebody to be empathic, if you increase their empathy quotient, will you make them vulnerable to others? Might they, in fact, become vulnerable to people who will prey upon their empathy? Good question. So our brain. Now, I'm showing the cerebral hemispheres and the cerebellum, but please understand that I know there's more to the nervous system than just the brain. I'm not going to use the word mind. I promise. I'm not going to use the word mind. I'm like one of those department chairs that doesn't... I'm not sure I really know the answer to that question. I think I know, and I think it's a real, relatively aggressive kind of left-wing thought that maybe there's more to the mind than just what happens in these circuits, but you know what? I'm not, I told you I'm not going there. <clears throat> and I'm actually not going to... Never mind. Okay. So, so the, the ultimate frontier for us 
as a species is to find out how the nervous system works. And the prediction is that discoveries that follow will impact every aspect of our existence. This is a three-pound gem. What we think and feel, our sense of who we are, how we respond to our world, all are manifestations of our brain. The mind may extend beyond the brain, but I promise you that a lot of the workings, of the, a lot of what happens, a lot of what translates information into knowledge and awareness occurs here. Deciphering the brain. Because brain function is written in the structure and function of neural circuits, then understanding it means we have to understand circuits, how they assemble, how learning and memory happen, how, how behavior emerges from the activity of circuits. There's that word emerge. How circuit disorders cause brain disorders. And here's the argument that our tools, while far from elegant, are already adequate to begin to address these, these issues. So, a very brief lesson in neurobiology. I'm going to look at the right here. This is a circuit. This is a diagram, a cartoon of a neural circuit. And there are three neurons, number one and two and three. And this is the antenna of the neuron. It's called the dendrite. And here's the cell body with the nucleus. And here's this long tube called an axon. And all these three neurons have these three parts. Information comes in, for example, visual information. It excites, it electrically excites this dendrite, and that's transferred to the cell body, which, if adequate, then will elicit an electrical response that travels down the axon, and at the end of the axon, at a place called the synapse, results in the transfer of neurochemical information, little chemical molecules that then excite the dendrite on that second neuron, and so on and so on. That's a circuit. In fact, the brain is a tale of many circuits, many billions of neurons, many trillions of synapses, and many millions of circuits. It's a little bit complicated. And so with that, how do we understand this whole process? Now let me give you another word, use the word emergence again. I can promise you that you can know everything possible about the structure of molecules. And that doesn't really tell you necessarily what cells are like. And I can understand this level and can't possibly really predict from that how synapses work or how circuits are created or how they function or how circuits translate into cognition and behavior. These are scales of understanding of the nervous system that have to be delicately and detailed study at every level but only when we begin to examine levels and compare them and provide theories, computational models, can we really understand the brain. What happens here cannot be predicted to sort of translate simply in a linear model to what happens here. It's nonlinear. It's somewhat chaotic. It's highly exciting. And we need to understand it. And especially for this conference, how does this work? How do we understand the function of circuits as they relate to cognition and behavior? And here's a tool that's really made a big difference. You've heard this term before, fMRI. This is an MRI machine, and the subject lies in the MRI machine, and while normally it's used to diagnose brain disorders, it can also be used to study the brain. And so here are the story, here's the story behind functional MRI. 
Neurons use oxygen when they become active. Those three neurons in the circuit would be using oxygen. And because of that, there's a local consumption of oxygen that is it's reflected in this thing called the BOLD signal, B-O-L-D. That signal allows one to indirectly image neural activity. The spatial resolution is, resolution is good, not so much temporally, but we can combine that with EEG and with other measures to allow us to see things in time much more effectively. And this tool and the ability to image particular brain regions and where those neurons must be active has really transformed our ability to look at the linkage between circuits and behavior. So a circuit for empathy, does it exist? I don't know, but maybe. And the first insights to this came from uh, or first insights using fMRI, and I think the most persuasive one in the, in the last 15 years, was from Tanya Singer and her colleagues, published in 2004 in Science. So she placed subjects in an MRI machine. She measured brain activity using the bold signal, while subjects either received a painful stimulus or saw a cue indicating that a loved one in the room next to them received a painful stimulus. She recorded the bold signal. And the responses were examined with respect to overall measures of empathy, their own self-reported measures of empathy, using standard empathy scales. And what is really interesting is that she saw specific brain regions lighting up. Regional activation in something called the ACC, the anterior cingulate cortex. And here in the AIC, the anterior insular cortex. And what was very striking is that the patterns of activation in the person receiving the painful stimulus overlap considerably with the pattern elicited when they thought about their loved one receiving the painful stimulus. In fact, here's the time course you can see on this sort of parameter. Here's the ACC, here's the AIC. The temporal resolution wasn't perfect, but it suggested that there was a sharing of brain activations for pain in self and pain in others. These two regions were specifically activated and again in both the subject and the partner. There was a positive correlation between empathy scores and the activation of these regions and there was therefore evidence for sharing of regions of activation for pain in self and empathy for pain. What does that say? It says there may well be shared distributions of neural activity. There may, be well, there may well be shared mechanisms by which neurons communicate for self and for empathy. There may well be organizational models and pathways that can be explored. And perhaps one can do that within a single brain as well as across the brains of two collaborating individuals. Very exciting. She's been able, with her colleagues and others, to look now over several years at no less than nine studies looking for pain in self and others. And this diagram is simply to show in red that the activation of the anterior cingulate cortex and the anterior portion of the middle cingulate, the middle cingulate cortex, as well as the anterior insula, are routinely activated for self and for other pain and different paradigms using pictures instead of these cues. Pictures of people in distress, for example, very similar 
activation in the cingulate cortex and the anterior insulin to some extent in the inferior frontal gyrus. So, is it a circuit for empathy? We don't know. But what we can say is that the anterior insula, and I'll just use AI, and ACC also participate in interoceptive awareness. Your awareness of your own internal feelings activate these two brain regions. The AIC appears to register awareness. And for those who were in the room yesterday when Deepak was asking you to feel your own sensations, I don't have an MRI machine in this room, but I'm going to bet you a perfectly good bottle of Coca-Cola that most or all of you showed activation in your AIC. In fact, the AIC may serve as a node, a brain node, for instantiating subjective feeling states as well as empathic feeling states. And so Bud Craig says here, the AIC provides for the awareness of this moment with an integrated and coherent representation of my feelings about, what, about that thing. Very useful. So what about the AIC? What does it look like? Well, here's a picture of it. It sits in the depth of the cortical space. It has a posterior, a middle, and anterior portion. The, anterior, the posterior portion takes in sensory information. The anterior portion seems to have the cognitive awareness, a cognitive uh, consciousness. I should be careful with that word. The, co the cognitive awareness of whatever sensory information coming from within is being presented. And, of course, I want you to remember these diagrams, but this is just to make the point that visceral inputs, whether pleasurable or not, and inputs that are like pain sensations or itch, travel in pathways that go through the thalamus and directly to the AIC. There's a biology and a connectivity that makes sense. And what about the ACC? Here's a picture of it. It's very interesting. It's richly reciprocally connected to the AIC, and most studies of AIC activation show coincident activation of the ACC, and that's very cool, because now one can see that these two regions talk to one another. They speak to one another, and apparently are very important for, on the one hand, being a, if you will, a sensory center, I'm feeling something, and a motor center, from here I might act upon that feeling. What about compassion? Much less done in compassion. But here's a study from 2009 in which volunteers were asked to assume either a compassionate attitude or a passive attitude while viewing sad or neutral faces. And you see a number of medial as well as inferior frontal regions activated in that task. It looks like compassion and compassionate attention activates motivation and reward networks. So a circuit, sensory inputs for feeling, the communication between the AIC and the ACC, which uh, supports evaluation of that information, cortical and subcortical projections, which allow one to act, and then circuits that allow one to reappraise. What did I feel? What did I do? What sense does it make? So, caveats. Bold signals are indirect, crude measures of neuronal activation. Inactive neurons may be present in active regions. 
coincident activation of regions suggests but, but, does, but does not at all prove linkage in a circuit. Thus, while the data point to a circuit for empathy and suggests links to those for compassion, this has not been proven. The neurobiology of empathy and compassion is in its infancy, but the infant is healthy. Very briefly, can you train empathy and compassion? You may know that people who do meditations for tens of thousands of hours are able to generate gigantically positive, wonderful expertise and awareness. They're able to change their brains. They're able to change their minds. It's true the brain changes. Gene expression is modified. I have no question about that. But I don't have an extra 10,000 hours. And some go for 40,000 hours, and that's like eight years. I do not have that many. I, I mean, I'm, I, I got a job. So one payoff of understanding the nervous system is that if we knew what happened in the nervous system and we could activate what happens in the nervous system, perhaps then one would be in a position to take advantage of that and actually, if you will, help the brain. So here was a very interesting experiment done by Bierbaumer and colleagues some years ago. They thought that if they could regulate the activity of the AIC, they could modulate perception of visual emotional stimuli. There were three groups, an experimental group that looked at their real-time bold image. And the, they were told, make that signal hotter. We don't care how you do it, just do it. And another group that had real-time imaging, but not of their signal. And a third group that had no bold signal coming to them, they just used mental imagery. And afterwards, they were, after an imaging session, they were allowed to, asked to actually, view a sad face and, and record the degree of its sadness. What did they find? So here was the paradigm. Look at the, your scan and increase your signal. View a negative image and rate how sad it was. Normalize your bold signal. In other words, bring it back to normal. Look at the picture and now rate its valence very quickly. Over time, they were able voluntarily to increase the signal in their left anterior insula. It increased significantly relative to controls. The same was true for the right insula, anterior insula. Other regions were activated. And the valence, their awareness of sadness was markedly increased. This is negative, meaning faces were sadder, controls unchanged. And the overall bold signal relative to valence of emotional awareness was were, those two uh, factors were positively correlated. So we're at a very early stage in understanding the brain basis of empathy and compassion. There's a consistency and plausibility to the findings for the regions activated and for the activities that they're upon follow. But other regions very likely participate, likely playing a role in defining emotional states and guiding actions. Complex social phenomena like empathy now can be reliably studied. Future studies will explore activations in normals as well as in those with neurological and psychological conditions. It's an exciting possibility that feedback paradigms can be devised that enhance self-awareness and the ability to engage more effectively in empathic and compassionate behaviors. Building a rigor, rigorous neuroscience of empathy and compassion could enhance uh, 
our lives, those of our friends and foes, and I think transform our world. I hope that this robust future occurs for all of us. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Dr. Mobley, for your many words of wisdom. Next up, I want to introduce Dr. Rob Knight. Dr. Knight is the founding director of the Center for Microbiome Innovation at UCSD. In addition, Rob is professor of UC San Diego's Department of Pediatrics and Computer Science and Engineering. Dr. Knight will be speaking on microbiome and health. Welcome, Rob Knight. Thanks so much. All right. Uh, first, first, I'd like to thank uh, Deepak for uh, for organizing this amazing event and for inviting me to it, and uh, to all of you for uh, for uh, making this such a uh, such an incredible mixture of uh, such very different fields. Um, I'll be taking a, I'll be taking a slightly different tack from the last couple of speakers, uh, moving from uh, moving from our brain to our gut, which in some ways is arguably even more complex and uh, has profound impacts on our health that we're just starting to understand. So I want to begin by asking you, what did you see when you looked in the mirror this morning? I saw an organism that was 43% human, and not just because I hadn't had my damn coffee yet at that point, but when we think about what makes up our bodies, each of us consists of about 30 trillion human cells, according to the latest numbers but we have about 39 trillion microbial cells, and so it's by that measure that we're about 43% human. Now, you might be thinking, well, wait, it's not really our cells that make us human so much as our genes, our DNA. So let's think about that for a moment. Each of us has about 20,000 human genes, but the size of our microbial gene catalog ranges from two to 20 million microbial genes. And so by that measure, we're at best 1% human. And this is, this is pretty fascinating when you think about systems biology. You've probably heard about all the enthusiasm for systems biology and for precision medicine. And it's pretty difficult to do systems biology if you're ignoring 99% of that system, which is what we do when we ignore the, you know, the genes that are in our microbiome. So, um, so this idea that we... Uh, so, so genes are only part of our system, and the idea that we are what we eat is certainly not a new idea. And there's this wonderful quote from Jeff Bland, who uh, he likes to say that food is a language that speaks to our genes. So, uh, so, so our genes are fixed, but what those genes do afterwards depends a lot on, uh, on what our food is saying to them. And in large part, this language is a language of color. So uh, all of the brightly colored foods that we eat have different compounds in them, like the lycopenoids in the tomatoes, the, car uh, the carotenoids in the carrots, uh, the anthocyanins in the blueberries, and so forth. And so there's this amazing language of color uh, that the diets we've co-evolved with use to speak to our genes. Um, of course, today uh, we've lost a lot of the connections to that language. So uh, regrettably, instead of this kind of thing, um, when, uh, when, when my four-year-old goes a few blocks from our house uh, to the local corner store, what she sees is this instead. And, uh, you know, she'll look at that rack and she'll, uh, she, she's very polite. She'll say, uh, uh, she'll, she'll say, Daddy, you know, you always tell us that we should eat a lot of brightly colored foods, and so please may I have some Cheetos. And unfortunately, the response was not quite so polite as the question usually. 
but, uh, but, but, uh, but the artificial substitutes that we have for this natural language of color that our food is trying to speak to us in um, is, 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 is no real substitute for, the, uh, for what we're missing out by severing that connection. Now, when we think about, uh, when we think about our genes, um, often there's this idea of essentialism and uh, that our genes control a lot of stuff about us. And it is true uh, that genes have a very important influence on our health. Um, on the other hand, a lot of the genes that have that influence are microbial. And so, for example, today I can tell you with 90% accuracy whether you're lean or obese based solely on the DNA of the microbes in your gut. So on the one hand, this is a cool trick from a technical perspective. On the other hand, we don't think it has a lot of commercial potential as a test for obesity, because I bet you can tell which of these people is obese, knowing absolutely nothing about their microbes. But if we try to do that same prediction task, lean or obese, based on the human genome, we can only do that with 58% accuracy, knowing all of the sequences of all of your human genes, versus 90% accuracy based on your microbial genes. So the microbes are definitely doing something there. And uh, we can prove that they're actually doing that by turning to experiments in mice. And so uh, in work with Jeffrey uh, Gordon at, the Was uh, at Washington University in St. Louis, uh, we were able to show that you can actually take the microbes from an obese person and then transfer them to mice raised in a bubble with absolutely no microbes of their own. And when you do that, you get a fat mouse. But that's not true if you instead transfer the microbes from a lean person. And what's amazing about this is that we could even design a synthetic microbial community based on the microbes of a lean person that prevent the mice from gaining that weight. Uh, so, so this is amazing, and other researchers have shown that you can do the same kind of thing for all kinds of other conditions that you might not have expected, including even, uh, even psychological traits. So you can, make a uh, you can make a bold mouse timid or a timid mouse bold by swapping its microbes from another sort of mouse that normally does something different. So this might lead you to wonder, how can we map our microbiomes? And this has been the major focus of my lab's work uh, over, the, over the past 10 years or so. And uh, in the Human Microbiome Project, which we were a part of, together with about 400 other researchers around the country, uh, this was a large NIH-funded project, uh, about $173 million in total. And one key piece of it was characterizing what does a healthy microbiome look like. And so we looked at, uh, in the initial publication, we looked at about 250 people at up to 18 sites in the body, which, as you can imagine, is a lot of places to stick a Q-tip. And um, in, in this project, we collected four and a half trillion bases. So just to put that in perspective, that's 1,500 times the size of the human genome, all of it from the microbial genes. And so, uh, and so we're using the DNA to read out the microbes where they live in their environment. But the drawback to this is that we do get a lot of that DNA data. So what I'm showing you here is the first file of data from the Human Microbiome Project. Um, this is fundamentally an ecology project, but it's pretty hard to tell who lives where in the environment from this, and especially what species let us, uh, what, what sequences let us tell that. And the worst part is this is only the first 0.1% of this file. There's another 17,000 files just like it. And this is increasingly a problem because with projects like American Gut, which I'll talk to you about in a little bit, and various companies that will give you a readout of your microbiome, uh, the issue is that you might be going to your doctor with a list of 1,000 genes that were in your gut, sorry, 1,000 species that were in your gut, or a list of a million genes that were in your gut, and uh, getting into the office and saying, okay, so doc, I've got this list of 1,000 species that were in my gut, can you tell me what's wrong with me? And all your doctor can do at the moment is refer you to their colleagues in psychiatry, uh, for being crazy enough to think that they can tell you that in the 15 minutes you have together. 
But a lot of our goal is to make it not crazy anymore and to figure out how to integrate your data with the data from thousands of other people so that you can actually get something useful out of it. And when we apply these snapping techniques uh, to the Human Microbiome Project data, what we get is this much more interpretable, uh, interpretable map. And you're probably thinking, well, wait a minute, I don't understand this any more than I understood all those A's, T's, G's, and C's. But just bear with me a moment. Each point on this map represents the location of a particular microbial community uh, read out by its DNA in relationship to all the other communities. So, for example, all the complexity of that oral community is boiled down to just one point on that map. And if I color it by different, uh, by different kinds of information about each sample, the most amazing thing is just coloring it simply by what part of the body it came from. And you can see immediately that the different parts of the body are almost like different continents in this map, where they're very different in terms of their microbiomes. Now, the way this works is that two points that are close together have very similar microbiomes, and two uh, points that are further apart have more different microbi uh, microbiomes, as read out by their DNA. And so if I highlight the mouth and the gut of the first person in the Human Microbiome Project, you can see they're in totally different regions of this map. And it wasn't until we did the Earth Microbiome Project, uh, which I co-founded back in 2010, um, uh, uh, that, that we really understood how profound these differences were within the human body. Because what we could do is we could cross-reference the human data to the environmental data and just ask if we go out there on the planet, what two environments are as far apart from one another as the mouth and the gut of this one person in the Human Microbiome Project? So if you think about your mouth as being kind of like a coral reef, uh, you have this complex mineralized structure covered with biofilms, maybe your dentist pesters you about those from time to time, uh, then amazingly, the mouth and the gut of this one person are as far apart from each other in terms of their microbial ecology as the microbes in this reef are from the microbes in this prairie. And that's incredible because it means a few feet along the length of your body makes more of a difference to your microbes than thousands of miles across the Earth's surface. So each of us has a personal journey through this map, and so it's interesting to think about where we begin, where our first microbes come from. And if you have dogs or kids, as I do, you probably have some dark suspicions about that, uh, all of which are true, by the way. So I can actually match you up to your dog with fairly high precision just by looking at the microbes that you exchange with each other. But in all seriousness, how we're born has this huge impact on babies' first microbes. So this is some work we did with Maria Gloria Dominguez-Bello, uh, now at NYU, where what we're looking at is we're looking at the microbes on uh, mothers an hour before they gave birth, and then on their babies within 20 minutes after they were born. And what you can see is that the babies who were delivered vaginally in pink, all the microbes from all over their bodies look a lot like the vaginal uh, community of their mothers. Whereas in contrast, in light blue, we have all the communities from all over the babies uh, who were born by C-section. And then you can see that that looks very much like the skin of their mothers in dark blue. So you start off with these totally different microbial communities, depending on your delivery mode. And we think that this might be tied to the higher rates of asthma, of allergies. Some studies have even reported higher rates of autism if you're delivered by C-section than if you're delivered vaginally. And all of those conditions have now been linked to the microbiome. Now, before you panic, if you had a C-section or were delivered by one, remember that the most likely outcome is that your kid is going to be fine. Right? We're talking about statistical risks, but when you apply them over a large population, those risks start to add up. And uh, with Ruth Lay, who's now at the Max Planck Institute, um, we looked at the development of the microbiome in one child over the first two and a half years of life. And so that big yellow dot is going to trace the journey of this one child's fecal community 
over the first two and a half years of life. And if you're wondering why two and a half years, that's when the kid was toilet trained, and it's a lot easier to get the fecal material out of the diaper than to fight your kid for them uh, after, after they probably learned how to flush. So, um, so, so in, the, in this animation, we're going to trace the journey through this map. And each, each step in this journey is going to be one week. And the question is, how completely does it approach the adult fecal state as defined by the Human Microbiome Project uh, down at the bottom there in brown? And uh, is it a smooth progression or is there a lot of back and forth? Are there any events along the way that are important? And so I'm just going to start this going. And you can see that some weeks, there's tremendous change one week to the next. And sometimes it's just a little change. Remember, the main thing that matters on this map is how far apart two points are. So this means that sometimes, because these points within this one child are further apart than any two adults we saw in the HMP, it means that your kid really is a different person one week to the next, at least in terms of their microbiome. Uh, now, coming up here is something amazing. So, uh, so the kid gets antibiotics for an ear infection, and you see this tremendous regression of the microbiome, followed by a rapid recovery. And that went by pretty fast, so I'm just going to rewind it for you and play it again. Uh, basically what happens is on administration of oral amoxicillin for an ear infection, we see this tremendous regression of the microbiome, uh, undoing months of normal development in just a few weeks, followed in this case by a rapid recovery. And then by the time uh, the kid's two and a half years old, his microbiome looks more or less like a healthy adult microbiome, which is what we see cross-sectionally when we look at cohorts of hundreds of children. However, we think that recovery doesn't always happen, either in children and in adults. And one thing we're working on at the moment is to understand when antibiotics set your microbiome permanently on the wrong track, and whether there's any way that you can recover from that and resume a healthier journey through this microbial landscape. Um, so, uh, so, so on the basis of this research, and especially on the Human Microbiome Project, uh, a lot of people have been excited about finding out uh, where, uh, where, where they are on this microbial map. And so um, in 2012, uh, we, we launched this project called American Gut. Uh, we launched it over Thanksgiving, which is a time when a lot of Americans are thinking about their gut for some reason. And it's crowdsourced and crowdfunded and basically gives every, anyone a way to participate instead of having to be in the catchment area for a particular government-funded project and to meet all the exclusion criteria. And so this is a way for any citizen scientist to find out uh, what's in their own gut. Of course, it turns out that not everyone wants to know what's in there. So these are middle schoolers touring our lab and, and learning that what we're going to do is use lasers and robots to study the bacteria in, the poop, uh, in their poop, all of which is literally true. Um, but, but at this point, a lot of people have been interested. We've raised a couple of million dollars at this point, um, essentially all in $99 increments from members of the public, and uh, we've had over 10,000 people sign up for it. What's amazing about this is that with the population sizes of 10,000 people, you can see all kinds of things that were subtle and invisible to previous studies. So this is a little bit technical, but basically the steeper these power curves rise, the fewer people you need to tell apart uh, people in one group or another. And so a steeper curve means a larger effect. And you can see that some of the largest effects, and these are ranked in, um, from, from top to bottom in descending order, how big the effect is. You might have expected that your age would affect your microbiome, which it does, and whether or not you have inflammatory bowel disease, and whether or not you've used antibiotics recently. And all those have a large effect, but the most important effect is the number of different kinds of plants that you ate uh, in, in the two weeks before you collected your sample. And this is amazing because what it means is that lifestyle factors can have a larger impact even than drugs or uh, even than the diseases that those drugs are treating. And so what we're trying to find out at the moment is are these effects in the same direction 
or are they in different directions? And can you counteract the effects of drugs or disease by eating the right diet? Uh, you might be wondering whether, uh, for example, being a vegan is especially good on us. And we saw no effect of self-reported veganism. But the reason why we think that is, is that you can be a vegan and eat mostly kale, or you can be a vegan and eat mostly fries, and those have totally different consequences for your microbiome. And, and similarly for the other, side, uh, similarly for the other uh, kinds of things when you self-report diet. So, so I'm just going to close with the uh, example that shows most visually and most, uh, most directly why you care where you are on this microbial map. And so this is just to reorient you, and I'm going to tell you about some work we did with Mike Sadowski and Alex Karutz at the University of Minnesota. And this is, uh, this is looking at the case of Clostridium difficile uh, in infection. So this is a really nasty form of diarrhea where you might be going to the bathroom literally dozen times, uh, dozens of times a day, and it kills 14,000 people a year in the US alone, and those rates are going up substantially. And if I show you the fecal samples of people with C. diff, you can see those orange stars look nothing like a healthy fecal microbiome, which remember I told you was that uh, set of brown points down the bottom. So what's going to happen is that four of these patients are going to get a fecal transplant from one donor, who as you can see is in that healthy space. And if you're wondering what a fecal transplant is, uh, this is Bill Sanborn, who's our, uh, who's our chair of gastroenterology, um, about to administer one to someone um, using this hospital-grade stool uh, from, a, from a nonprofit called Open Biome that's based in Boston. And so, so if you're going to radically, uh, completely replace your microbiome with someone else's that you think is healthier, what is the consequence of that for your journey through this microbial landscape and for your gut ecology? Well, uh, now, instead of, instead of the kid that I showed you before, where each frame was a week in his developing microbiome, in this case, each frame is going to be just one day in the microbiome of these patients as they get this fecal transplant. And what you can see is that immediately, uh, so within just two or three days, all of them move from the unhealthy state into the healthy state, and then they stay there during the months of follow-up. And this is coupled to remission of all their clinical symptoms. So you have people uh, producing firm stool, sometimes literally for the first time in years, and being able to get up and walk around again instead of being bedridden. And so, um, and, and so this is this truly amazing transformation of their microbial ecology that you can just see for yourself. And so, the challenge, um, and, and so the challenge for the field at the moment is to try to figure out which of the many other diseases that have now been linked to the microbiome. So things that you might have expected, like inflammatory bowel disease, uh, things that are more unexpected, like heart disease, arthritis, cancer, and then things that are really unexpected, like there have been some reports about autism and Parkinson's disease, for example. Uh, for, which of these, uh, for which of these problems with the microbiome can we correct them by one means or another? whether it's as extreme as fecal transplant or as mild as altering your diet, and how can we track whether you're getting brought back into health. And so one thing that we need to do is we need to find the good and the bad places on this map. So we're examining some of the healthiest people around campus, like our, uh, our 1,500 student athletes, and some of the sickest people on cam uh, campus in the cardiac and then the oncology wards and so forth. But we need to do more than develop a map. We need to develop a kind of microbial GPS that tells you not just where am I right now, but where do I need to go and what do I need to do in order to, be able to, uh, in order to be able to move in the right direction? And ideally, we need to develop the system and make it so easy to use that even our children can use it. So you could imagine a smart toilet where as soon as you flush, what it's going to do is deliver that information to your smartphone, which, let's face it, I bet you're using in there anyway. And it's going to show you your location on this map and how you've been moving over time. And whether, uh, and, and whether your current data dump indicates you're going in a good direction 
or a bad direction. And then uh, ideally it might be able to even use augmented reality. Uh, so, so throughout the day it gives you hints about what you should do in terms of your diet, in terms of your exercise. Uh, maybe instead of catching Pokemon, it'll show you the one yogurt out of those thousands and thousands at the supermarket. That's the one that you need to take with the right kind of lactobacillus or whatever uh, to cure the particular uh, GI issue that you have. And um, so this is what we're trying to do at the moment uh, through the Center for Microbiome Innovation at UCSD. Uh, it's the kind of thing that requires a huge interdisciplinary community, both of researchers and of interested citizen scientists. And that's why the participation of a huge number of people through American Gut is so important. So I'd like to close by thanking not just you, but uh, all of them out there, including the many watching online, for participating in this project. Thank you. Thank you, Rob Knight. And now our next presenter is Shamini Jain. Shamini is an assistant professor in psychiatry at UC San Diego, a researcher in psychoneuroimmunology, and a clinical psychologist. She is also the founding director of the Consciousness and Healing Initiative, a collaborative accelerator that forwards the science and practice of healing. Shamini will be speaking today on the biofield. Welcome, Shamini. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sarah. Wow, what a journey we've taken um, in the last day and a half. Good morning, everyone. Do you realize it's still morning? <laughs> we've gone from dark matter and dark energy to contemplating that we really don't exist to trying to describe that of which we don't exist to today realizing that if we do exist, ourselves are likely relational, even down to our microbes. I, don't, I can't think of a single conference <laughs> where we can cover so much ground in, you know, in about 20 hours. So thank you, Deepak. Thank you to everyone at the Chopra Foundation that has made this amazing conference possible and all the speakers. It's incredible. So my name is Shamini, and uh, I come from a research field called psychoneuroimmunology. And um, it's quite a mouthful, even we don't like to say the word, so we call it P&I for short. And uh, you already learned how exciting and fun it can be to put together a, a group of consciousness researchers. So imagine what happens when you put together a bunch of researchers in P&I. Um, and we all love to talk about what we do, right? All researchers do. And so um, you'll often hear things like, well, what do you study? Well, I study, you know, the effects of stress on the cardiovascular system and how stress might contribute to sticky platelets. Or I study how depression, you know, might affect disease progression and cancer. So, you know, love the conversations, and then, you know, oftentimes it'll come to me, and people will ask, well, what is it that you study? And I say, I study healing. And they say, oh, that's interesting. Like, do you mean wound healing or something like that? And I say, no, well, I study ancient practices, ancient forms of healing, including things that are now used here today, like Reiki and healing touch and therapeutic touch and things like that. <laughs> so that's usually a conversation stopper right there, because, of course, most people have no idea what it is. Um, and if they do, they have certain perceptions about what it is. And here you can, of course, see the lady lying on the table saying, I had a very different idea of what Reiki was about. And, you know, this is generally, I, we get the stunned response sometimes from our colleagues. And they say, well, isn't that like where you go to the spa and get your aura fluffed or something like that? I mean, Shamini, we have real issues in, in medicine right now. We have real 
behavioral issues. Why are you studying something so fluffy like healing? And I said, yes, we do. We have really significant issues in this country um, in terms of our health issues. Um, cancer, of course, chronic you know, cardiovascular disorder, but probably brought to all of our attention last year by the untimely death of one of my musical heroes, Prince, chronic pain, which affects over you know, 100 million Americans, um, particularly our veterans, and is costing us over $300 billion annually. And so how are we treating it? We're treating it using a pathogenic model. The pathogenic model is, you know, basically, um, and you can see kind of pathogenic thinking all over the place these days. There's something foreign inside of me. I need to get rid of it. So in this case, it's pain, which is causing suffering. Well, we don't know how to get rid of the suffering, so we're just going to numb ourselves to the pain by taking these pharmaceuticals. By the way, OxyContin has now been approved by the FDA to give to uh, children as young as 11. And as you know, it's a very highly addicting substance. So how are we fixing that problem? Well, we're applying more pathogenic thinking to deal with the pathogenic thinking that created the problem in the first place. So to paraphrase Albert Einstein, um, we can't solve the problems that, with the same kind of thinking that we, that we use to create the problem in the first place. But that's exactly what we're doing. Um, and so, you know, this is a significant issue. And so again, my colleagues will say, yeah, Shamni, we understand that, we, we buy that. Um, but how is the study of healing going to help this issue? And because, you know, again, you're talking about things that are really bordering on the verge of spirituality, and we know that can't be studied. Um, well, I remind them that actually, 50 years ago, our field of psychoneuroimmunology did not exist. And actually, it was less than 50 years ago that the idea that the immune system was connected to the brain was complete heresy. I mean, it was completely laughable. People couldn't even fathom that idea, let alone the idea that our emotions could affect our bodies and could affect our health. Um, so we've come quite a ways because of the dedicated effort of a few scientists who had provocative data and sought out interdisciplinary collaborations with other scientists to forward this field. And now, of course, we know so much more. We know, we know about the connections between our emotions, our immune system, our neural system, even to the point where a recent paper was published in Nature last year suggesting that there might be microvessels of immune microvessels in the brain. Now, we wouldn't have even thought to look there a couple of decades ago because we didn't believe it was possible at all. But frontier thinking has always been a part of psychoneuroimmunology. And we can look no further than to one of the co-founders of psychoneuroimmunology himself, Bob Ader, when he expressed an understanding that when we talk about the immune system or the cardiovascular system or the central nervous system, we're just putting things in boxes so that we can try to dissect and understand that part of the system. But really what he was pointing to is that with very careful study, what's probably more important is to look at the relationships between all those systems and that potentially the relationships are part of what he thought would be a single integrated network of homeostatic mechanisms. So this was Bob Ader's words a couple of decades ago. I'm going to suggest to you now that the single integrated network of homeostatic mechanisms is what we call the biofield. And how do we describe the biofield? It's a new term that has been coined by scientists in the West here for the last two decades or so. And if you can't read that very well, the biofield is currently described as a set of interacting and interpenetrating fields of energy and information 
that guide the homeodynamic functioning of a living organism. Well, there's a mouthful, and again, kind of hard to understand by many of us. So what do we mean by that? Um, let's just try a little exercise. We've all been sitting for a little while, so I'll invite everyone to stand up. Those of you who might be watching from afar, do the same. Um, go ahead and stand up for a minute. Feel your feet on the ground. If you feel like you need to move a little bit, just bounce up and down a little bit on your feet. And then rub your hands together very vigorously. Just very quickly, while at the same time, if you can, keeping your attention on the feet, touching the earth, and then just slowly pull your hands away, just a little bit, moving them back and forth a bit if you like. And you may feel absolutely nothing. There's no right or wrong thing to feel here. I just want to make that clear. But as you breathe and you feel your feet and you um, focus on what might be or might not be between your hands, if anyone feels any particular sensation, I'd love for you to just shout it out. Oh, woo, that's good. <laughs> that's excellent. What else? Warmth, heat, pulsing, force field. Okay, great. Um, I know you probably don't want to, but go ahead and have a seat back down. <laughs> Um, this, these are some of the things that, you know, have been used to describe whatever this is between our hands. And so I think the big question is, what is that? What is it? And does it convey any useful information about our state of being and our state of health? So when we describe the biofield, there's one part that we describe that's veritable. And this is stuff that's really familiar to all of us. Things like, things that you can measure really easily that you know, measure electrical potentials, for example, from the body. So the EKG, the EEG, these are all examples of biofields. And we know that measuring those aspects of the biofield, we've learned how to deduce the information and have it tell us something very meaningful about our health. And there's some really interesting, significant advances that are being made in the area of veritable biofields. And Stuart Hameroff touched on this a little bit yesterday, including electroceuticals. Electroceuticals is a, you know, is a phrase that's uh, coined by a couple of my colleagues in the area of bioelectromagnetics as potentially the next wave of big pharma. And there are a lot of pharmaceutical companies that are investing in these bioelectromagnetic approaches to treating disease. This just gives you one example of the myriad of different approaches that are being used right now. Post-electromagnetic field stimulation, transcranial direct current stimulation, uh, um, Stuart talked about transcranial ultrasound, quite a few that are being used now to look and see whether or not manipulating the biofield, that is manipulating um, electrical and magnetic currents at different frequencies, different pulse rates, can induce some kind of physiological change for the benefit of the living organism. Okay, so this is happening right now, and it's kind of exciting. Um, and so the question is, where are we going with this? Um, are we moving past one flew over the cuckoo's nest? Maybe some of you remember that, you know, the, the days of ECT, which is still sometimes used for refractory depression, to pulsed electromagnetic field stimulation for the knee. But why stop there? We can develop devices that help us focus better and play video games better. There's a company doing that. But why stop there? We can develop a device that we can put on our head, a patch that supposedly stimulates the trigeminal nerve so that when we feel tired, we can press a button and feel better. Or when we feel like we need a jolt, we can just press the button and jolt ourselves. There's a company doing that. They're not doing as well as they had thought they did. They attribute it to their marketing plan, which was very heavy. Um, but why stop there? 
We can simply implant electrodes in our brains. And there's this quote from a scientist at Johns Hopkins in the Business Insider that said, now we've got a, pro- we've got a solution to the obesity problem. If we feel hungry, we can just, you know, for those obese folks that feel hungry, they can just press a button and they won't feel hungry anymore. Great, right? I mean, is this where we want our medicine to go? This is how biofield science is being used currently. It's, you know, potentially going to make a lot of money. But uh, maybe some of us feel like there's something missing from this picture, right? Our own state of awareness, our own sense of who we are as human beings, our connection with the deepest part of ourselves, and even the connection with the divine. What role does that play in our healing process? So the second aspect of the biofield is the one that maddens scientists to death, and the reason why I get asked why I study this. And these are the subtle aspects of the biofield that are very difficult to measure directly, if not impossible, although people are trying. And the interesting thing about these subtle aspects of energy, which are sometimes called prana, chi, other things, ki, in many different healing traditions, is that they form the basis of indigenous medicine across the globe um, and have been used for thousands of years in practices including Ayurveda and Chinese medicine, acupuncture, Um, but are also used by a group of um, practitioners that are often now called biofield therapists, those who practice Reiki, healing touch, and that sort of thing. So from a scientific point of view, I find it completely fascinating to study this work because it lends itself to questioning around the aspects of healing that may be beyond the material nature, so no one is discounting the materialist explanations that we might have for some of these effects. Um, But yet, in these types of therapies, there's no stretching, there's no needle, sometimes there's no touching. Um, So what are they doing? So for those of you who may not be familiar with these types of practices, the practitioners across the board will generally describe the process like this. They're literally emptying themselves of themselves as much as possible. They're expanding their awareness and remaining in a relatively neutral state so that they can, in essence, conspire with consciousness to catalyze the currents of compassion. And, you know, some may not use the word compassion, some may say it's more of a neutral state. Um, But in the process of doing this, with the client and the receiver, they're helping, in their perception, helping that client to connect with the deeper aspects of themselves that help to facilitate the salutogenic or health-promoting process in the spirit, the mind, the brain, and the body. So this is what they say is going on, and then the question is, is there any real evidence to suggest this stuff works? So we did a systematic review a couple of years ago. I did this with my graduate mentor at UCSD, Paul Mills, who is sitting right there, um, really the best mentor one could have ever asked for. Um, And we did a systematic review of about 66 studies across the board, and what we found, in essence, was that there was strong evidence for reducing pain in um, many different populations, moderate for hospitalized populations, even some suggestion that this could be useful for dementia, although we don't understand the mechanisms at all. A colleague of mine then looked to specifically look at non-touch modalities, those that are practiced hands off the body, and he also found across the board in his systematic review beneficial effects more often than not in these studies. So one of the questions that my, my colleagues will sometimes say is, well, yeah, Shamni, but isn't this all probably placebo effects? And so here you see, you know, mama pill telling daddy pill, honey, just go talk to baby pill. He just found out he's a placebo. (laughs) So 
So he must be worthless, right? There's no meaning to placebo. In fact, that's a whole discussion that we could take days to describe. The, the whole area of placebo is so rich and uh, so misunderstood in some ways. And yet we as integrative medicine researchers are often put in a position where we have to do these randomized placebo-controlled trials to show that the therapy that we're looking at is more than placebo effects. Okay, so we do those studies. I'm just going to talk a little bit about uh, one of the studies that we did. This study is published in the journal Cancer, pretty decent journal, read by oncologists um, and other medical professionals. And this was a randomized controlled, placebo-controlled trial of biofield healing to solve a very major issue that we still don't have solutions for. How many of you have been touched by cancer? Um, either someone you know or yourself, someone you love? Okay, many of you in this room. And so many of you may know that cancer-related fatigue is the number one complaint among cancer patients and survivors. And in fact, one-third of survivors well after treatment, after their surgery, their chemotherapy, their radiation, are still suffering from debilitating amounts of fatigue that basically prevent them from doing the things that they used to do. So it's a huge problem. We don't know how to solve it yet. There's no gold standard treatment for cancer-related fatigue. So we were interested in knowing whether these biofield approaches could be useful. Because again, from the practitioner's perspective, their vital energy is depleted. It needs to be maintained. It needs to be brought up so that they can then engage in self-care practices. So we did this randomized controlled trial. We randomized um, our, our people to three groups and looked at them over about a one-month period. They received sessions. Those who received sessions received them twice a day. So we had the actual healers that were, of course, matched on their expertise. And then we trained mock healers. So who were these mock healers? They were scientists. They didn't practice healing. They didn't practice yoga or meditation. They were open skeptics. They didn't really believe in this, but they weren't hostile towards it. We paid them. We trained them in the hand positions. They were fine. Um, and, you know, of course, all the sessions were done in silence. But, you know, that's not really enough to, to be looking at a mock group if you're really wanting to tease out placebo effects. Placebo is made of many things, including relational aspects. So we actually asked our patients things like, every session, what did you believe you were getting? Do you believe you got touch alone, which we told them could have beneficial effects as well? Or do you believe you got healing? Um, how connected did you feel with your practitioner? How much do you believe that this um, is helping you? We asked all those questions and we put them into the analysis. So what did we find? Um, here are the results. The white bar that you see there is the healing group. So we used a gold standard uh, method called the multidimensional fatigue symptom inventory. And as you can see from the white bars, these women started out with really very high levels of fatigue. They dropped down to levels of what you would expect for the normative population. It was a huge effect size. Um, clinically significant as well as statistically significant. What about the mock group? They were in the middle. Those are the middle bars, kind of the light gray bars, if you can see that. The dark gray or the weightless control group that didn't change. So the middle bars actually significantly dropped as well in a pretty decent effect size. So what we took from this is simple things like coming in, interacting positively with a group of women who seem to care about your well-being, laying down on a table twice a week, Engaging in you know, self-report measures where you're measuring your mood, all those things mattered as well. But it did seem that there was something about the healing group that seemed to be, in some cases, a little different, perhaps a little stronger. So we then looked at um, a biomarker called cortisol variability. So how many of you have heard of cortisol, the stress hormone? Pretty much everyone, right? We think of it as a stress hormone. Like many hormones and molecules in our body, it follows a diurnal rhythm. And it turns out that rhythm is really important. Um, so generally, as you can see from the graph, 
Cortisol rises throughout the night, kind of peaks about 30 minutes after you wake up, and then slowly declines during the day. It turns out for breast cancer survivors, particularly those that are fatigued or depressed, that rhythm is really aberrant. There could be many different reasons for it, but you don't follow that natural rhythm, and, and that's an issue. Cortisol is, of course, connected to the inflammatory immune system as well. So there was actually even a study that suggested that cortisol variability is linked to mortality in breast cancer patients. So it seemed like an important biomarker. So what did we find? Well, the graph on the left shows you the three lines of the three groups there, and there was no significant difference between those groups at start. Um, now, the second graph that you see, the solid line, is actually the healing group. And so what we found was a significant increase in cortisol variability, or that is a decrease in slope, specifically for the healing group, statistically significantly different from both the mock group and the weightless control group. So, of course, we saw this result, and I said, what is this? And we, you know, we put in every variable we could think of, all the placebo variables I mentioned, body mass index, age, you know, all of these different variables that we thought could potentially explain away these results, and we couldn't. So it's a mystery. And what's interesting is it's not the only mystery. There are other studies, which unfortunately I don't have time to share with you today, um, that have also found influences on functioning in cancer patients, other patients, as well as biomarkers. And there are cell studies, and there are animal studies as well. But of course, there are always criticisms of this kind of work. And you know, somebody, I think, already mentioned Jim Coyne. He's one of our favorite critics. And um, essentially, I find these, these criticisms really interesting because they're not so much based on study methodology um, or how we conduct the trial. They're really just based on their belief or non-belief of the therapy. So we don't believe in this energy healing stuff. That's not real. It doesn't exist. And so therefore, you shouldn't be doing this, and patients shouldn't receive it. So it has nothing to do with benefits to harm ratio. It has nothing to do with the actual clinical efficacy. It has to do with belief. And again, we're sort of stuck in this one way of thinking around pathogenesis. And so this is impacting the way we do medicine. Fortunately, there are leading organizations such as the Chopra Foundation, Institute of Noetic Sciences, Miraglow Foundation, and other foundations that are forward-thinking in this area and have come together to form a collaborative called the Consciousness and Healing Initiative. And one of the first activities of this collaborative was to foster a transdisciplinary science of healing. So we held this meeting and we brought in many of the scientists, actually some of them that you've already met, um, that are part of this group, including Menas Kafatos, Neil Thies, um, we already mentioned Paul Mills, Tiffany Barsotti, who is sitting next to him, Deepak himself, and others. And we came together to discuss what is the state of the science around this area, both in cells and animals and humans, distant healing. How do we incorporate these into healthcare? How is it doing in healthcare? And I'm very pleased to announce that we published a special issue which can provide everyone with the up-to-date information on the science of healing, freely available at our website, which is www.chi.is. So this is just one of the things that our collaborative has been working on together. So to me, the reason why the science of healing and the study of biofield science is so exciting is because it's starting to bring us more towards a model of salutogenesis, a model that is going to help us more deeply understand our capacities for healing ourselves, but not just ourselves, for healing others, for healing this planet. Because what these studies are telling us is that our capacity for healing is great. It's, it's actually quite profound. And so it's putting, again, that agency, our ability to act as conscious agents, back in our hands. 
Um, and it's just one of the reasons why this work is so exciting and so important. In truth, at the Consciousness and Healing Initiative, we understand that there's a need for healing across all of these levels. And so if we're going to really foster the healing that we need to see in the world and the transformations that might occur in science and medicine, we need the truth-seeking um, aspects of the scientist and the inventor. But we also deeply need the heart of the clinician who knows what it's like to be with someone who's suffering and ameliorate that suffering in their own ways and learn from their wisdom. We also need the wisdom of the spiritual practitioner, those who see with clear eyes and who live this type of practice every day. And we also need the wisdom of the artist, those who know what it's like to connect with Source and create from that place. So together, when we come together, when we bring our communities together, we really forward a much deeper wisdom and understanding about what healing truly is. And this is what our collaborative aims to do, and we hope that you'll join us. Um, we are actually having our first public event, November 4th in San Diego, where we'll be talking about the healing revolution, how when we place healing at the center of both our inquiry and our action, we may foster the necessary evolutions that might occur in science, in medicine, and even social impact. So you can learn more about it on our website, and I hope that you might join us. And I just want to thank every single one of you for being here and contributing to the healing that you might want to see in the world, um, because your healing matters greatly. Thank you. Thank you, Shamini Jane. Our final presenter in the well-being session is Ryan Castle. Ryan is the founder and executive director of ishronline.org, a database of integrative studies. Ishar is dedicated to improving access to the science behind integrative medicine and theory, combining scientific, scientific rigor with open minds. Ryan will be speaking about Ishar Online today. Well, please welcome him. Good morning, everybody. And uh, I just want to echo what a number of other people have said and thank all of the speakers from earlier this morning and from yesterday. It's been an amazing and an absolutely humbling experience to be here in this room. Um, so just one more round of applause for everybody that's been up here. One of the reasons I'm especially grateful is that the people in this room, and especially the people who have come up to this stage, are exactly the type of people that Ishar is trying to reach out to and trying to provide services for. That's our entire reason for being, is to try to give resources and tools to people who are approaching difficult problems in innovative and collaborative ways. Now, I'm an historian, so therefore, the most logical way for me to approach a discussion about interdisciplinary science and collaboration is going to be discussing the ancient Greeks. I think you're all with me on that. Now, if we go back to the original first Olympics, they were a very different type of event than what we're used to now. Nowadays, the Olympics are all about specialists in their fields, the shot putter, the discus thrower, the swimmer. Nobody really cross-pollinates into different events, or at least very, very few people do in a meaningful way. Other than perhaps somebody might do several different types of swimming events or several different types of track and field. 
That wasn't the case in the first Olympics. In the first Olympics, you couldn't divide it up into individual games. That one person would only compete in the shot put, and that was, that was just their game. Things were very different. Specialization was seen as unhealthy. Specialization was seen as unhealthy as working out your right arm until it's massive and then leaving the left arm to be scrawny, relatively. So, to that degree, that's why one of the biggest events in the first Olympics was the pentathlon, because it combined five different types of events of widely varying attributes. You had to be very good at everything from precision to strength to endurance to flexibility. And the reason that was considered to be so valuable to combine all of these events in any given athlete is because the games were not tested, were not intended to test the proficiency at one skill. They were intended to test the arete of the athlete. And that's the overall excellence, sort of the holistic, organic excellence of that athlete. And they, therefore, there had to be a wide spectrum of approaches. They had to see everything that they could do to know whether or not that was a worthwhile endeavor. Now, as you probably have guessed from this not entirely subtle allegory, this applies as well to academic interdisciplinary. And that's a big part of what Ishar Online is trying to promote and we're really trying to explain the virtue of. In the current system of academic disciplines, as I'm sure most of you in this room know, the disciplines are broken down into specializations. And these specializations are one specific area of intense focus and study. Now, one of the issues with that is that in order for that to be a co coherent body and for these disciplines to actually uh, stand on their own and for them to be able to communicate with one another, they have to make their own language. And you end up with isolated definitions, terminology, and methodology between the people in that individual discipline. Now, as many of you also know, the current system of academics generally indicates that when one person advances in their field, when they get further doctorates, when they become a bachelor's to a master's to a doctorate, and then as they increase in their career, they become more and more and more specialized in their field until, uh, to some degrees, we have people that are called hyper-specialists. Now, this isn't a bad thing. There are a lot of absolute benefits to specialization. One of them is the fact that you have extraordinarily deep understanding of extremely complicated, nuanced topics that you cannot get as a generalist. Another is the fact that that very uh, isolated communication system with the definitions and terminology allows for extremely efficient communication within that discipline. They can use shorthand and terminology amongst themselves that otherwise require lengthy uh, extrapolation, interpretation, and oftentimes compromise on what the term means if you're working with other disciplines. Uh, it also, to that end, encourages technical research. It allows people to, encourages people, I should say, to research extremely arcane, esoteric topics that in the whole of academia may not seem worthwhile, but in a specific discipline and especially in a hyper-specialization, that's a worthwhile niche to be explored. That's an area that nobody has really delved into, and so therefore, it's attractive. And in those areas, we often find treasure troves. But there are also problems with it. Hyper-specialization especially can result in the condition of knowledge that is uh, a mile deep but an inch wide. It also is a problem with interdisciplinary cooperation because you have issues of inefficient communication because exactly the issue that brought those terminologies into play in the first place makes it difficult for people to understand 
and to interpret what people from radically different backgrounds are talking about. And that leads to, more often than not, they just don't talk about it. How many times have we heard up on this stage today, well, I'm, I'm not going to get into the definition of consciousness, or when I say mind, I mean mind, but not brain, or brain, but mind, because all of these different disciplines, these different backgrounds, have different ideas and interpretations of what that means, and that discourages collaboration. That, of course, has an impact in discouraging research into how different disciplines from widely different backgrounds can actually have synergistic abilities that, for example, uh, many of the most powerful disciplines today emerged from people bridging that divide. Neuroscience is a discipline that emerged from interdisciplinary cooperation and has become an incredibly powerful field because people worked on developing those terminology uh, issues and resolving the conflicts, and they're still resolving them. Now, I have to admit that this image right here I put up there just because I figured it was an excellent uh, representation of that inch wide and mile deep, but my first, my first love was this particular slide. And it's, it's not entirely fair. It, it's a little bit of a cheap shot, because as I said, specialists do amazing things, and they're, they're not unreasonable people. They're just focused on their area, but anyway. Now, to the point of interdisciplinarity. The reason why interdisciplinary is so, interdisciplinarity is so important is that when you have different uh, divisions of sciences and academia, you have interstitial gaps. And that's the space in between those disciplines. The social sciences don't generally have a direct border with, for example, formal science. There's not uh, any given area where you can say, oh, well, I'm exploring, uh, you know, economics as it relates to, uh, uh, let's just say, uh, quantum mechanics. Although, actually, that's probably something that is going to be developing in a moment now. But these interstitial gaps are areas where are sort of a no man's land. And again, I think I'm preaching to the choir in terms of I'm sure there are many scholars, many who have stated so up here, that when they start to go beyond that tight boundary of what is covered in their discipline, they start to receive a lot of skepticism from their peers. There starts to be a lot of wondering of, why are you going into that area? That's natural sciences. We're in the social sciences. You don't go over there. You stay over here. Despite the fact that there are enormous benefits to be found by joining them and enormous disadvantages by not. Because as you start to have more specializations, which is the world that we live in now, you start to have a greater surface area of these interstitial gaps until eventually you reach a point where there is massive areas of research that could be done but isn't because it's outside of the bounds of any of the given disciplines. We keep getting, making disciplines more and more specific and making more and more of them in an attempt to fill in those gaps, but we're exacerbating a problem of this interstitial problem, of the interstitial absence of uh, true collaborative research. This is a quote I'm very fond of that really, I feel, uh, identifies some of the real holistic ramifications of interdisciplinary work. That in order to know something as a whole, you need to be able to have an insight from the interior and from the exterior. So, a lot of you are probably wondering what it, 
am I talking about? How does this relate to Ishar Online? What is Ishar Online? Well, we evolved as an attempt to address part of the needs of this community, of, of an ability to address integrative studies in a holistic way, a contextual way, to provide a platform where people would find resources to allow them to collaborate, to allow them to find where these different disciplines cross over, even when those disciplines don't know it themselves. To do that, you need an open academic environment. You need to represent many different specialties. And you need to have multiple modes of information processing, or otherwise known as knowledge discovery devices. And finally, you need to make sure that you hold all of these studies up to the highest rigor of their respective fields. So that's where isharonline.org comes in. We're a Chopra Foundation initiative, and what we're trying to do is bring understanding and comprehension of the hard sciences behind integrative medicine, integrative culture, and integrative theory, both to the public and to the use of researchers and scholars. This is our mission. Unfortunately, we are running a little behind, so I'm just going to go ahead and skip through that. If you want, all of this information is on the website. So, to address some of the needs that I just listed for what you need for an interdisciplinary platform, uh, academically, Ishar currently hosts, uh, this is actually an outdated number, we host uh, over 60,000 peer-reviewed studies uh, in integrative medicine, integrative cultural practices, spiritual treatises, um, and anthropological studies. We're an affiliate of Columbia University, and everything on our website is completely open access. There is no fee, there is no sign-up. Everyone can access everything. That's one of our core beliefs, is that in order to make a resource available and useful, you have to make it accessible to everyone. Uh, in terms of diversity, we make sure to represent dozens of disciplines. We have everything from theological to quantum mechanical studies housed on Ishar. Uh, we include a number of different categorization systems to make sure that that's treated in both a holistic manner, uh, cross-referenced and contextual, and discrete so that you can find exactly the type of study or uh, findings that you're looking for. And that's allowed us to affiliate with everyone from quantum physicists to uh, the Parliament of World Religions, for instance. Now, our modalities are the function where Ishar has really tried to shine. We're trying to provide as many resources to the academic community as we can. So there, that's what led to the creation of the holistic mind map, uh, intuitive tags to be able to find any of those 60,000 studies are all tagged with information so that you, if you find a study on meditation that relates to visual acuity, it should have a tag associated with that so you can click on that and immediately find any other study from any other discipline that relates to that topic. Uh, we also have reverse engineered categorical systems, so if you find a study through that tagging system, you can see how it relates and what field it goes into. Uh, we also include very comprehensive summaries on dozens of integrative topics from Ayurveda to meditation to yoga to acupuncture to biofields uh, to aromatherapy. I'm actually going to go back just a moment because the mind map, the holistic mind map on our site is something that we're really proud of. And so I want to give it just a little bit of love here. This is a 100% open access interactive mind map. Anybody who comes to the site can access this can manipulate this. I wish I could put a, an animation, but unfortunately we didn't have the, uh, the space for that. But they're able, you are able to move any of those icons around. Double-clicking on them will open up a full summary of that. That'll lead you to the website if you want, and you can see all of the sources, the research, and the science behind these topics. You can also click on them 
and reorient the entire map so you can see how all of the other studies and topics and uh, intentions, modalities, and geocultural heritages relate and are connected to any given topic. It's as interactive as we can make it, and we're very excited about the potential of making a uh, holistic interface. So, the rigor that we have on the site, everything is peer-reviewed in a scholarly journal um, that is in the archives. The rest of our content is very carefully curated, and we have transparent methodology. Anybody who wants to know more information, I'd be, honestly, I would love to geek out about that. So. Unfortunately, again, we're running short on time, so I'm not able to get through this, but the long and short of it is this allows us to be able to access a wide range of different approaches uh, from one search result. Now, this is the point I really want to get to. This just launched on our site yesterday, so I would highly encourage everyone here, if you have some time, go ahead and check it out. We just established uh, a platform called the Scholars Hub. And this allows anybody to create a profile that allows them to effectively create a searchable category for the project that they're working on. If they're a researcher or they work for a research institution or they want to be a volunteer, they can create a profile in which they can include the tags of describing everything that they're doing, whether they're a researcher, what institution they're with, a summary of their information, uh, a button, a confidential button for contact, and a function to be able to upload research with anybody else who has ever created one of these profiles. So you can search and find what people from other backgrounds, other disciplines, other universities, other institutions are working on before this information has been published in a proprietary manner so that you can find uh, issues of collaboration. You can, uh, we can hopefully enable the ability for interdisciplinary collaboration, uh, avoiding the duplication of work, and Hopefully, our dream is to create a paradigm which allows for a massive level of collaboration on an interdisciplinary level that is going to redefine how we approach the disciplinary system. This is an example of what the, uh, the hub profile looks like. So, in the end, our goal does come back to the Olympics. We, what Ishar is hoping to do is to provide, uh, let's say, the stadium for academia to try to achieve true arete, to become a, an organic, holistic uh, example of excellence in the idea of learning and in integrative studies across the spectrum. And we are thrilled to try to provide every resource that we can to that end. So thank you very much.